All right. Thank you, everybody, for joining us tonight. Uh, Paul, I'm going to unmute you. Paul, thank you so much for making time for us. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. Um, so this is really exciting. Um, Paul is someone that uh, I haven't met, but I have sent his video, his TED Talk, to dozens of people. Um, I'm a big fan of, of the work he's doing. And I actually happen to have gone to UCLA. So before I saw the TED Talk, I just thought it happened at UCLA, but then I saw that you also teach there as well. Mm -hmm. So um, I have walked some of the same places you walk. And awesome. yeah. I'm, I'm really excited for a few reasons and we'll get into it, but I wanna make sure we give a proper introduction. Paul is somebody who runs the martial arts program at UCLA. He is a really accomplished martial artist in a lot of different realms. And he started a program called Cognitive Kali. And that's the same name as the TED talk that he did. After I saw the talk, I reached out to him. Um, I, someone sent me the video who was a, a student of ours. And I was like, oh, I just feel like we need to be connected. And then as times changed here and we started changing the mediums that we're, we're working on, I felt like he was somebody that would be worth talking to. And um, you know, putting a recording out there to the world and also giving opportunity to some of our students to ask some questions. Um, but maybe, Paul, maybe you can uh, uh, expand a little bit on your background before, uh, before we continue. Sure, yeah. I, um, I mean, I've been, I've been doing physical education is what, what, what it started as. You know, I did GCSEs in England, which is uh, like a pre-college high school. I guess high school diploma would be the same thing over here. Uh, and then I you know, studied kinesiology at grad school, uh, in bachelor's degree in England and then in grad school at Indiana University. And that was um, that was actually by, that was quite an accident. I have a I have an old uh, VW bus when I was with the pop top and the, and the kitchen inside and all that. And that uh, on a road trip around America, it broke down in, in Bloomington, Indiana. So, you know, I, I stayed and did two master's degrees. <laughs> so it worked out pretty well. But the, one of the big things I, I was offered like a, a, like a full, like a scholarship and assistantship to do that. And, uh, and I wasn't sure I wasn't planning on doing grad school, but I, I looked up the Indiana university martial arts program and literally I, like on the computer when I was stuck there and this offer came through and it's the largest martial arts program in the country. They have like 1800 students every semester. So I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah, I could do this. <laughs> that's, so that's Yeah. That's, that was my grad school. And then I, I worked in Florida for a couple of years um, uh, for Florida Gulf coast university. And then uh, the UCLA opportunity popped up and I grabbed it with both horns and I've been here 11 years now. I think. Wow. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about, um, which forms of martial arts you've maybe spent the most time in or, or, or maybe where you started and where you're at now uh, with yeah. martial arts? Definitely, definitely. I, I recall watching um, The Karate Kid, the original, not, not the, the other one that we want to mention, the original Karate Kid with my buddy Edward Leyland. I remember him and he's a, he's a, he's a good guy, still in touch. And, uh, and I think we went, like, we went into the garden or something and just started punching and kicking each other. So parents were like, okay, karate class. I'm, we're like 10 at the time. So I, I vaguely remember those classes. I think I may have done like a month or three classes or something like that. So that, that didn't last. But when I was 15, I decided to look back into it and started training in kickboxing um, with Combat Academy UK with uh, Ian Goldie, who um, was my instructor at the time I was 15. This is 1994. Oh God, I've just given my age away. Anyway. Um, 
<laughs> and uh, and did that for I think I I now know this I think like eighteen months maybe two years but I know this because we reconnected about three four years ago. He came to a Kongtip Kali. Uh, so I think actually I think I was doing like uh, combative stuff as well. I was doing in a sense of stuff, and um, and he came to it. And it's the first time I'd seen him since I was sixteen or seventeen. And we've reconnected. He's been out to LA two or three times. I've taught for his group. I teach for his group weekly right now online. So we really reconnected there, which is fantastic. And he's he's learning the cognitive Kali right now. Um, so that was really interesting from being the student. Now I'm his, his instructor in the Kali. Um, and so that was that. And then college, uh, I remember I signed up for a contract, my first like martial arts contract. Like I was, I was bound by it. I, I was very nerve wracking because I was in college and didn't have any money. So we, me and my buddy JP, we went to every single class come rain or shine. We walked, I walked there. It was a long way away, but it made every class cheaper. You know what I mean? You're paying a monthly fee. So if you right. go to more, it's cheaper. <laughs> right. Was it, and this was kickboxing? Yeah, that was, a, that was another kickboxing that was up in uh, Lincoln in England in Midlands. And uh, we, there was a world champion there of some division of, uh, I think he was a welterweight kickboxing world champion of something. Um, so that was encouraging. I, I, me I remember si I, I, I wanted to do fight club because it was just, it was more of like a conditioning and, you know, hitting the pad stuff, but there was a fight club if you wanted to compete and, mm -hmm. uh, and they lined us up and, you know, I've seen similar things since and have different pins on now, but they lined us up, told us to put our hands on our head and the world champion came and came and gave us a shot in the gut. Wow. And then they, for every, they said, line up again. Mm -hmm. And a bunch, a bunch of people dropped out including me because I wasn't going to take that again and then they didn't get punched but they were in fight club so it was a real kind of machismo type thing which I'm glad I didn't participate in much more wow, <laughs> but, you, de you definitely don't hear those kind of stories anymore not, not not much anymore you get a few videos here and there but yeah that's that's yeah. back a few years ago now uh -huh. and then Indiana University was really where everything just like exploded um I guess my mother art is Hapkido that's what my highest rank is in and I've been training the most in but obviously since being out here uh training with guru dan and uh doing the kali sila jikiri savat muay thai all mm -hmm. that stuff you know it's kind of playing around whatever i can find really which is it's not hard to do it wasn't hard to do in la it's a little bit hard now obviously but obviously yeah but i mean it's amazing yeah the access that we have to things now yeah 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 it's, and when uh, you and when you do the martial arts program at ucla um you know you head the program is that right yeah, yeah, I'm the director. And how much teaching is involved? Do you, you know, are you running certain specific programs or are you just kind of managing the scene there? Yeah, it's 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 behind a computer most of the time, unfortunately. Um, how much teaching is is how much I I choose. I, I get to teach whatever I want, really, because I run the program. But, uh, you know, running the program takes some time. So in the past for the for the past few years, especially since I have my I have a two year old son, mm -hmm. I've been doing I've been doing Friday afternoons or when we were back in, we, I was doing Friday afternoons and I would throw all my favorite classes in there. So Hapkido would be on there, but I'd have, I had another black belt running it and I would jump in and help out. We also had a sparring class cause I wanted to spar. So we had a sparring class. Uh, anyone who was getting ready for Muay Thai level prep, like round tests, they would, yeah. they would come to that and I would train them. So we, at one point we had a really cool programming. Like we'd had the, a few of the jujitsu team would come in and roll cause there was room. Mm -hmm. uh, the Hapkido class would be going on. There'd be some sparring. Uh, every now and then the Aikido guys would come in and then the heavy bag would only be the Muay Thai. So it was this hodgepodge of, of people training martial arts and, and then managing the space was, was key as well. But that, that really excited me because I, I like the diversity of the, of the program. That's one of our strengths, I think. 
it seems pretty rare that you would have like a um almost like a martial arts collective like that right because then there's yeah. this real like exchange of information like um I go to a jujitsu school in Manhattan. I, I train at Mar the Marcelo Garcia Academy. Mm -hmm. And again, it's just jujitsu. And maybe if you go to a couple other schools, it's like jujitsu and Muay Thai, or maybe they have like an MMA class. But this is a very interesting scene that you have here where you have like really experts in a lot of different realms sharing information. From yeah, the top it's, down. That's, that's what excites me about it so much is that we have, we have 20 different styles of martial arts in some format or other summer classes, but then we have, we have competitive clubs as well who uh, compete at the international level sometimes, especially Kendo, um, very high level there. And, um, and one, one, the exchange of ideas is huge, just the even teaching methodologies. Like I watched, uh, Kevin's not with us anymore. Um, unfortunately, he taught Krav Maga and he had this cool like circle drill, which I can't remember now, but I remember watching it going, oh man, I could use that for anything. Muay Thai, Kali, boxing, doesn't matter. Yeah, the yeah. teaching methodologies you find from all these different people is, is really special. Yeah. From that perspective, right, you're talking about like similar teaching methodologies or methodologies that can transcend. I think that there are probably a lot of themes across like, I mean, I shouldn't say all martial arts because some of them are not necessarily built as combative, right? Mm -hmm. But through all the, the combative martial arts, there are probably some similar themes that kind of roll from one to the other. Can you talk a little bit about some of those observations? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think I think Bruce Lee said this. I might be getting this wrong. If it's someone else, I apologize if you're listening. But it, unless we have we grow an extra arm or an extra leg, that movements really not. There's no new movement out there really. Like it's been done before. It's rebranded. It's it's done in different ways. It's repackaged and uh, and and it's applied to many different things, which I think is the most important part. Yeah. But really, we can only move a few ways. And then it's and then it's really amazing to see how people kind of like modify it and deal with it like punch coming towards my face how many different ways can we deal with it a lot apparently like mm -hmm. like quite a lot you know and and then we'll then we'll get into the argument of which is the best and that's just silly um mm -hmm. but the best the best thing i have about the program in in that perspective is a seminar we do every year it's called improvised weapons which is really cool so we we pull in a bunch of uh, basically i empty my kitchen and my living room out i'm like hey i could whack someone with this and i take it in and i do that but i teach it with two other people one is guru karma Kamen, who's an exceptional instructor from the inosanso academy uh, in kali sila and lots of different stuff and um, and the other one is actually, <laughs> I remember meeting this gentleman for the first time. I remember I remember I, I inherited the program and we had a ninjutsu instructor. And I had this kind of perception of ninjutsu as, you know, people in black pajamas running up the walls and three-toed shoes and that kind of stuff. And I was like, oh, God. And I met this guy and I'm like, yeah, that you're, that's different. You're different. He's He's been the head of the UCLA self-defense program for eight, nine years now because his application of his art to real-time combatives and he does it for a living as well is phenomenal so you take this ancient art which has dancers in it it has chinese forms in it it has has a hawaiian connection but he's like yeah okay that's the art but if we're going to talk self-defense and combatives here's how we apply it properly and i think that's that's really really a cool way to look at the martial arts is that yeah we're learning a discipline a curriculum yeah. But but if we're applying it a different way, sure, yeah, we're going to look at it a different way. Fred Mastro of the MBS, he does that a lot. He's a seventh degree SILA master. Mm -hmm. And he a lot of his stuff is very, very clean cut combatives. But when I've taken seminars with him, he'll show the, the, the SILA form that it came from. 
Mm-hmm. It's just like, well, that's that's the art, but I need to use it to save this guy's life or objective protection, that kind of stuff. And I think that's a really cool perspective that if you can look at whatever practice it is and go, this has a practical application, but it's also beautiful and I can use it for many other things that are not combatives. Yeah, it's like the closer you get to the practical application, the more similar they get. Yeah, oh, well, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Simple, simple efficiency, yeah. It reminds me, um, there's a guy, uh, Chris, who's on here listening right now. He's a friend of mine who I train jujitsu with. And he and I have had a lot of conversations. And he's somebody who's taught me a lot about jujitsu. But he used to say there's basically three different kinds of jujitsu. There's sport jujitsu, there's MMA jujitsu, mm-hmm. and then there's real life jujitsu. Mm-hmm. Right. So he'd be like, oh, you, you know, you might do this thing in a sports setting because nobody's going to try and punch you. Yeah. You might do this thing in another setting because they're going to punch you, but they can't, they can't grab your throat or gouge your eyes out. And then there's these <laughs> whole other layers. And like, you know, like we were just saying, as you get closer to that, like real layer, things start to get, get a little jumbled up and a little more similar. Definitely. There's definitely a Venn diagram there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about um, cognitive collie or maybe describe to people what Kali is and then also talk about how you got into doing the research that you were doing with the 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 neuroscientists at UCLA and then kind of what the program has evolved into since then yeah definitely definitely um but if I start the so Kali I sorry I assumed everyone was all Kali experts that's that's that's, that's my perception uh Kali's a martial art from the Philippines it's been around for thousands of years um has heavy European influence from the Spanish uh, colonization for 300 years. So there's a lot of Italian stuff in there as well, but it's basically fighting um, in all areas. So there's 12 areas of Kali and, and a lot of those areas include weapons where there's a long weapon, short weapon, long and short axe and shield, all those kinds of things, flexible weapons, projectile weapons. Those are all different 12 areas and it has a healing area. The 12th area, the highest area is healing and it has empty hand and it has everything. So it's a kind of a fully fledged martial art, but it is very well known for its sticks. And I guess in modern times, very well known for people hitting the sticks together in patterns. That's, and and often we get made fun of for doing that too much and not the sparring and the combative applications, but it's a, it's a great martial art. And it's, um, it's something that I, I, as soon as I took my, the first class I took actually was modern Arnis, which is actually quite different to the main style I train in now is it, well, the instructor that I learned under taught it in a different way, um, maybe. I don't know about other styles and modern monies, but it was very, very close quarter trapping, what we call tapi tapi. Uh, and I love that, but it, it, it just made my brain melt. It really did because I didn't get it because a lot of it was left versus right. So there was no that, none of that symmetry there. So, and now I, now I understand why that was happening. But uh, back then it was just like, I'm, I'm not very good at this. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that was at Indiana. That was the first Kali class I took. And then I took the stick arts class, which was the simpler stuff, the Innocento lineage family stuff where um that we see in in many other different kind of uh, gyms um and then when i moved to florida there was no there was nothing no, like in fort myers at the time which is where i was at i don't they may have been somewhere but not there certainly wasn't a kali gym or a muay thai gym i, I couldn't find them I, I wasn't there for very long so i ended up just start teaching i started teaching some friends and there was one guy jeremy howard who we would just go back and back and forth and we'd say, right, we're going to do this sequence of drills. We'll do heaven six, standard six, earth six. Then we'll do it backwards. We'll spin around a couple of times. And we've got to go through all of that three times without making a mistake or we don't get to go home. 
or go and have a beer or whatever it was. And that's, that's, that's my first kind of memory of going, oh, hang on, there's something to this. Because as soon as we made one mistake, then we'd be focusing on that part of the drill to not make that mistake. And guess what? We make a mistake somewhere else. So that, that idea of processing speed or what we, I know now as working memory, being able to think about something while you're actually doing something, that was the root, that was the seed. And that's kind of like where the program's gone from there. And then here at UCLA, we, um, I had a, a student, Jay O'Shea, Dr. Jay O'Shea. She was actually a dance major, but has real excellent ability to translate her knowledge, which was extensive in dance to other movement practices. And she started training and she's like, no, there's something to this. And because she was faculty, she was able to kind of put together what we call a TSG, a transdisciplinary seed grant to do the research that we did at UCLA. And that was a lot of fun. I think we did 10 weeks, three times a week for an hour and 15 minutes. And I really think that was, you know, we have no, we have no uh, measurement on that, but I think that was a big difference. Typically a lot of time we train twice a week or a lot of people train seven days a week, but, but if you're taking a regular class twice a week, it's a pretty normal thing to do. So I think the three times a week and the extra 15 minutes instead of the hour class that we, we run a lot of the time, I thought that was a difference. The problem with it, we ran it over the summer and the, the research, the study ran past the last day of summer classes and a lot of our participants were students and they just bounced. Mm -hmm. So, we had a lot of attrition and we weren't able to pull statistically significant results, which is a big deal in research. You can't just kind of say the raw data, which I will right here because the raw data looked fantastic for mental rotation. Mm -hmm. and, and then even, even the neuroscientist, Dr. Bilder, he was like, if you have more people, this would definitely be statistically significant, but you can't publish with that. So that, that kind of like stopped the research there and it hasn't kicked off again there. I started working with a couple of neuroscientists outside of UCLA. Dr. Sean Mullen in uh, Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, and Dr. Olaf Krogolson in uh, University of Victoria. And they're my, they're my advisors. So really that the cognitive, the talk, the TEDx talk, mm -hmm. I, was, I was a lot more worried about uh, the reception from the Kali community because I'm, I'm a white English guy and, and mm -hmm. you know, I'm not indigenous to the art and speaking about it. I was worried about that and it was greatly accepted. It was really like, I've not heard a bad word about it. Um, but I knew I didn't have any trouble with the neuroscience because everything I said in that talk, I ran through the advisors. I'm like, can I say this? And they're like, no, but you can say this. And I was like, I'll take it, you know? <laughs> so it's very, there's some very guarded statements in there and maybe, maybe people can tell, I don't know, because there isn't, there isn't any research about Kali and, and cognitive function. There's a lot of connected research about movement in general. And uh, yeah, Dr. I mean, Adele, yeah, I, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I, I just recently read a book on neuroplasticity and it talks a lot about the same kind of things. Yeah, the concepts. You know, either referring to dance or some sort of complex movement, whatever. So, I mean, it, it falls in the same realm, but I think that like there are certain places where it deserves the research and also 100%. anything that's been around for hundreds or thousands of years deserves more attention than we often give it, you know, like things don't last that long for no reason. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, the, at the end, um, I really do think that we should be able to, if, if the, if, if the money that is put into pharmaceuticals is put into movement and understanding how we move changes our brain chemicals and everything like that, mm -hmm. we, we would be just be prescribing movement. Doctors would just prescribe specific movements for specific ailments that would help. You know, we know it helps so many different things physically and then getting into the, the, the neuro side of it. And then, you know, just talking about mental and uh, emotional health, uh, the psychological side of it, I think there's going to be huge things if we looked at it properly. And it's what's great about it is that 
that's and it's why I, I started my program because I held back I held back I was like I want the research but the neuroscientists I work with were like just do it there's no there's no negative side effects to it unless you get a bad partner and they whack you in the hand a couple of times that's about the, the worst you're going to get from training in Kali then just train with soft sticks but there's no you know even if we in 10 years 20 years down the line and we do some longitudinal studies and it's like yeah it's actually not that much different than just jogging around the block mm-hmm. okay cool like you learn a new martial art, a new skill, a self-defense art. You got a, a huge community because it's a fantastic community. So yeah, I'm not really worried too much about super statistically significant stuff. There's the people who train it understand it has some benefits. It'd be great to find out what those specific benefits are, like in the in in, in the numerical academic world. But really, it's a great program to have, and and a lot of the pieces about mental health and positive brain health. Yeah. are already embedded into it, the social piece, the movement piece, you know, it's all there. Well, the exact numbers and the statistics is really just appeasing like a certain Western audience, right? Like, sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, no, yeah. no, no, no. I know it. I feel it. I see it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about, even though you couldn't publish the research or anything, like some of the observations you were making with regard to uh, cognition and depression, Alzheimer's, some of these ideas that you, you, you kind of skimmed over in the talk. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to give anything hard and fast. Obviously. Oh, of course. Yeah. The, I'll, I'll tell you about the study. The study was great. And I, the, I had a big regret. Um, there was a big whiteboard in the classroom you used and that's where I would put up the lesson plan and I'd have the ideas or I want to do in the head and the day of, I wrote them all out and I didn't take photos of those and they would get wiped clean every day. And I'm, I, that's like, man, I should have kept that. But, you know, I create them all the time. The principles are there, but that was one thing. But it was uh, myself and uh, uh, an instructor named Vincent Pham who teaches for me, Guru Elaine Rono, who's a high-level Inosanto guy. Uh, and um, I think there were a couple of others who came in and out. And and Anna, Anna came in and helped. That was the four of us, yeah. And coming up with the lesson plans, we were like kids in candy stores. We were like, how can we make this more complex? Oh, let's make them spin around. Let's make them do it in fours. So the, the coming up with the stuff was really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still, I still have fun doing that to the day. Um, my big approach right now and the person I'm working with more closely is a gentleman called Ryan Glatt in, um, here in Los Angeles. He is the program coordinator for the Brain Health Center, which is part of the Pacific Neuroscience Center uh, in Santa Monica. And so they, they, they know this stuff as well. They brought me in to present a bunch of times. They have a, they have a CogFit studio. So they do a bunch of movement that they know helps with their patients. And the big thing about the Pacific Neuroscience Center is they are, they have people from all over and they do a very heavy, heavy diagnosis. So even Alzheimer's or dementia has multiple things. It's almost the same as autism. It's on a spectrum. There are multiple different types of dementia where different pharmaceuticals help different people, but also different uh, practices, movement practices help, whether it's resistance or cardio, whether it's complex, whether it's uh, working specifically on an executive function, like working memorial response inhibition, depending on the diagnosis will really determine what the movement is, which is why I really like to talk about movement prescription is it's, it's, it's great to just get out there and lift some heavy stuff and then lift heavy stuff that makes your brain confused. That's good. The overarching is fantastic. But if we can really drill down, that would be fantastic. So there isn't, he would be able to talk about specific diagnoses far better than me, but um, we haven't got to the point where we can go, Oh, you have Parkinson's let's do this and this. I just picked up a a private client. Well, I was until 
until COVID hit mm-hmm. and it was Parkinson's. And I was really, cause I didn't know much about Parkinson's. I had to do a bunch of research. I went and met with some people who run Parkinson's specific gyms here in Los Angeles, which I didn't even know existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're not Parkinson's specific, but they just have a lot of Parkinson's. They do a lot of neurological stuff, um, but learning about it. And there was lots of things I didn't know. You know, I knew, I knew about the jitters. That's, that's about all I had, but I didn't know they froze. Mm-hmm. At some point they can freeze. And if they're not on balance at the time, then boom, you get this, this crash and the injuries happen. So that, I was fascinated by that. So I dove down that rabbit hole and like, how can I help that? Because that's that almost talks to me like the, um, your stress response, you know, we call it, we call it fight or flight, but a lot, of, if it's too much, your stress response is to freeze. And I'm like, well, is that brain chemicals? Like, how do we work that? And I, so I haven't, don't have any answers, but that's, that's the, the, the rabbit hole I was going down. I only I think I only had like three or four sessions with the gentleman before we, we closed down. So mm-hmm. hopefully I'll be able to get back and see him and, and come up with some like qualitative results with him. Yeah. yeah. And you talk a lot about, um, you know, I think a lot of people get caught up and they're like, maybe they learned something complex. Maybe they grew up doing dance. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're great dancers and they know a lot of really complex movements. And we say to them, oh, you know, you've got to keep learning, you know, Mm -hmm. you need movement complexity, right? You need to continue down this journey because it'll continue to benefit your brain. And they're like, oh, well, I still, I already do complex movements, but can you talk a little bit about the, the basically continuing education and the value of like the, the continuous state of learning, despite maybe coming from a complex movement background? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's, it's not complex if you know how to do it really well. <laughs> so you may say you're doing it, it maybe complex to other people, but if you know how to do it really well and you can do it all, autonomously, which is one of the learning stages, then you're not doing it. Um, it's really important because, because of neuroplasticity, which you talked about, but also neurogenesis, which is the creation of new neurons in the brain. Neuroplasticity is a kind of overarching term for the growth, but also the rewiring. Mm-hmm. So the example I always give is if you if you wake up and you have a, a, a relatively dull job and you wake up and you have the same cereal for breakfast and you put the same suit and tie on and drive the same route to work and do the same number crunching and come back the same route and have the same dinner, you're going to have some really strong pathways for those things in your neurons, but, it, but your brain's almost going to be desolate. Mm-hmm. I, I like the idea of having just a massive spider web of neurons where the, the, the dance class I took when I was age 15 actually helped me learn this martial art and making those connections. If we don't continue to do new things, then that neuroplast, that rewiring won't happen. Mm-hmm. And so that's really important, which is why it's the hypothesis of my program. That's on the website. My program's hypothesis is progressively complex movement will enhance cognitive function better than well-learned repeated movement. And that's the hypothesis behind it, which is backed by quite a lot. The, the, the theory I have which is why it's curly and not dance or drumming or anything like that is very, it's very much a theory. Um, but I, you know, I haven't really found an expert to talk to this about, mm-hmm. but it's, well, Dr. Builder, you know what? There's a, there's a video by Dr. Builder, who was the guy who did the, the UCLA research with us. We did a martial arts and wellness symposium for two years ago. The video's up online, marshalledu.com. And he talks about deep brain, old brain, which is that fight or flight, that stress response. And so my, my theory with the Kali is that because it's a combat art and you're simulating combat, and when you start doing those drills with the sticks pretty fast, it can be a little hairy. Like, you know, you can, you can one mistake and it's, especially when it's 40 people in the room, you don't want to get hit by the stick. 
right. it puts your brain into a little bit of a higher gear. So when you're threatened or when you there's that perceived threat, we, ha we have the stress response, which is a bunch of chemicals getting dumped into our bloodstream by the brain, neurotransmitters. And we work at a higher level. And there's lots of, there's lots of qualitative kind of like stories out there. The, grand, the grandmother who picked the car up to save the sun, all these kinds of things. There's, there's precedence to it, but I'd love to hear someone's expert opinion on, can we learn better or does neuroplasticity or neurogenesis happen at a higher rate when there's a, a threat? Now, obviously, you know, we're not going to throw in um, you know, Billy, who's 12, into a dog brother's fight because that's a high level of threat right there right. Uh, because that's going to be too much. So it's just like the stress response. If you put too much there, learning won't occur. Performance might occur, but learning might not. So it's, I'd love to investigate that. That's my theory, which is why I used Carly. I was like, we could do this with dance. I could do this with soccer. I could do it with anything. You just, you just randomize stuff and you make it complex and you, and you build the progressions on that. But, but Carly is really interesting because it, there are literally an unlimited number of combinations you can do. You've got a couple of sticks mm -hmm. and you got a, a forehand and a backhand and a high, medium and low. Mm -hmm. You just got quadrillions. Actually, there's a, there's a post on my content Carly page where the guy did the math he said, if you take a four count, a six count, an eight count, and a 10 count, and high, medium, and low, all possible combinations, it's 240 quadrillion. So it's like it's an unlimited art. So, you know, if you put someone who's been training Kali for 30, 40 years, knows all the drills, many different systems with me, I can still mess them up because there's a way to, to change those drills, which is, which is fun sometimes. <laughs> sometimes people don't like that. <laughs> to speak to your uh, fight, flight, flee, I'm not the expert, um, but... Um, there is a book called the, uh, pocket guide to the polyvagal theory. Ooh, that sounds good. Um, which talks about this specifically, uh, strongly suggest reading it. Um, the, actually the person who recommended it to me is the same person who sent me your video. Uh, <laughs> this gentleman, uh, Matt, who's, who's on here right now. Um, I think he actually just wrote a question that, uh, oh. yeah, he wrote a question in here. So I'll read it to you. Okay. Um, he said, regarding neuroplasticity, since Kali is tool oriented, is making the tools part of the process of neurogenesis, making knives, carving sticks? Ooh. Yeah, cool question. I have no idea. That's, it's, it's very important for me to say this when, when it happens. Is I, and I say, I think I say it in the TED talk, I'm not a neuroscientist, uh -huh. but I, but absolutely it would be mm -hmm. in it well, you're, if you're making a tool well it depends it depends like um <laughs> like painting art would be the same thing it's a fine motor skill but if you're constantly learning new things but, but you can dumb that down real you have these places where you can go and like have a coffee while while you paint like a pot or something yeah, that's like pretty a paint easy by numbers paint by numbers yeah you yeah. can dumb that stuff down but if you really dive into painting and learn all the different styles and get excited by different paint types and then find something else and there, there's that constant learning then then it's going to be there at the beginning it's going to be everything but even paint my numbers at the beginning is going to be challenging but then you'll get good at that and you have to find a different challenge so actually making the weapons which i know i know a few people who actually do that there's a guy who used to teach um shin kendo at ucla and he has his own forge and he makes samurai swords and, and katanas and things and it's super cool and so yeah it's absolutely it's a skill it's a skill that requires uh probably an immense amount of knowledge i, I think i can take the probably out of that but also uh, a certain amount of movement skill right whether it's the, the gross motor skill of banging the blade 
maybe I've only ever seen that in movies, so I don't know whether they actually do that or not. But uh, and then honing it, and then uh, all kinds of things, folding it possibly. That's all motor skill, and you have to learn that. And you probably messed it up a bunch of times before you got it right, like anything else. And that's where the learning occurs. That's where the growth occurs. If there's no failure, there's no learning. You have to fail. You can't go in and go, I'm going to be really good at this because it's just not going to happen. And a lot of people, that's the reason they don't do it. We have a stigma, so a stigma over failure in at least the Western world quite a lot. That's, a, that's something we, we've talked about a lot, that it's this, that is the speed bump and probably even larger than a bump. It's like a, a speed mountain that prevents people from getting involved because like you said, there's this stigma around failure when... Mm -hmm it is really the key. Yeah. It's, right? the only, it's the only way you can learn is if you fail. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so how do you communicate that then with people who kind of come to you, maybe someone who comes to you with um, something like an Alzheimer's or a depression, especially in a culture where it's like, you know, we, we jump immediately to something like medication. Mm. How do you have that conversation about something that's like, well, you know, you're going to take a pill and then you can go back to your daily life and it doesn't eat up any of your time versus a process, a discipline, a practice that you're going to have to commit hundreds of hours to and, and really earn something. You know, how do you communicate that if you've had to have any of those conversations? Not, not had to have many of those. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, and you know, Right now, there's a lot of people who have kind of small business like yourself. And, and from what I understand, you're, you have to let your space go yeah. um, because of this, which has happened to loads of people. You know, I work at UCI, which is a, an institution which is probably always going to be there. Right. And then even before pre-COVID, like, you know, I imagine that you're a large part of your work was, was getting people in the door and then retaining them. Right. Because that's your business. Mm -hmm. Well, shit, we got, we, we get 10,000 new students every, every year as freshmen. So we don't have to do too much of that. Um, but the retention and then, and actually recruiting them to do our program on campus. Um, that's a big deal because there's so many options. And so the strategy I have as a teacher, and that's, that's all it is. And everyone who's taught will know this is you have to be able to give them success pretty pretty fast actually and get that dopamine rush and, and and get the get those feel good chemicals going on so you have to provide it you can't go here's the drill spend 20 hours on it and come back and see me like old school mr miyagi stuff paint the fence yeah. i'll come back in a bit after my cup of tea yeah. um no you we have lessened and lessened uh, attention spans because of devices and all kinds of societal things so you have to be able to go boom yeah oh yeah you got that great now's the next thing mini challenges and things like that and so might not be the best way to do it but as teachers you have to you have to do that and especially if it's someone you know that is going to benefit uh, from a medical perspective from their health perspective um, it's really important because if they don't do it, then, then the, the repercussions could be severe. And that's, that's one of the main things that Dr. Sean Mullen out of Illinois does. Um, a lot of his grants are from the National Institute of Aging. And he, and he looks a lot, actually a lot about VR and you know, in-house gaming as a way to get people moving because the barriers are so large. You know, if you're someone who's got um, a, a, a disorder where falling is a, is a potential um, issue, then just leaving your house is dangerous and, and you have one fall and that's going to put a massive barrier up to movement. So how can you get them to keep moving and get them engaged 
and provide that little bit of success that gets that sparks that passion. I think that would be the number one thing is you got to spark passion. If people don't like Kali, they're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. If you don't like dancing, that's not going to be your career or spiritual. If you just need to get it in, you're going to sit on a treadmill or you're going to run around the block and just get it over with. But yeah. if you can find an activity that provides the muscular resistance, muscular strength, endurance, courage, spiritual endurance, flexibility, balance, coordination, you can, and find an activity that you can get lost in for hours, which is, mm-hmm what we do is for our movement practices, right? Then there's, you don't need to worry about staying fit. Yeah, It's your lifestyle. So for those people, you have to kind of like ease in that lifestyle change to something that is enjoyable that they look forward to every week and they want to do. And you can see that they've practiced it on their own. Yeah. That's, that's the key to getting that lifestyle change. I think. Right. You're talking about also then like basically having some compassion for the culture that they're coming from. Right, yeah. they didn't come up with like martial arts or that instilling of discipline and practice and like you know standing like this for an hour or two, you know. Yeah. So it's a it's a communication thing. Yeah, and it's definitely I've I've definitely grown through learning to teach martial arts to to different individuals. We had a we had a student who was blind for a while, Brandon. He was amazing. He could echolocate. Mm-hmm. So, but so we were training him to we to the point where I would put a focus mitt up and he would he would jab it and I'd put it over here. He would echolocate it and jab it. Like we were doing some really cool stuff with him. <laughs> but my teaching had to change dramatically. I kept catching myself going, "Look, this is the oh, mm-hmm. you, you can't see. You have to you have to really." And then I started implementing that for my instructor training. Like mm-hmm. they would they were given two envelopes and they'd have to pick a pick a thing out of each envelope and one was like a parameter for the audience and one was a parameter for them. So sometimes they had to teach without, without speaking. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they had to teach without demoing at all. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes they had to do it. Well, no one, no one's allowed to stand up, you know? So teaching Muay Thai would be quite difficult doing that depending on what thing they pulled out. Mm -hmm. So that's a really important part of changing how you, you, your, your teaching perspective. And I've just rambled on and completely forgotten your question. So I I love talking about teaching. It's one of my favorite things. I think that, um, there's a, there's a mess of, of bad teachers and a mess of uh, teachers who hand things out on silver platters. Um, and, I th- and I think you're talking about some really interesting uh, teaching skills. I think some people find a, a route or two to delivering mess- uh, a message and they stick with that. Mm-hmm. Rather than kind of moving through different realms, sometimes you, you know, here's some information that I can just hand you. Yeah. Well, I, I, I like to define those in very different ways. So yeah. we, we, we did this at Indiana. The, we have group exercise, you know, the group exercise where they got the, you know, the, the Britney Spears mic up at the front and everyone's yeah. doing the same choreographed movement. Yeah. I don't call them instructors, but we didn't at that at Indiana. They were leaders. Uh-huh. They're leading movement. Mm-hmm. Do as I do. Mm-hmm. There's not actual instruction happening. Sometimes there might be, but generally it's not. And then the classes that we have at UCLA, I would, I would put as mainly instructions like do this and you'll get it. Teaching, I think is, is just a massive jump ahead of that. Mm-hmm. Especially when you think about our, the heroes right now, the teachers that are keeping the kids engaged and involved through mm-hmm. this platform, mm-hmm. that takes a whole nother skill level, which is why you go to school for it for a really long time. And then above, above that, or even par, like depending on the situation, a coach is slightly different as well. Cause there's a, there's an emotional mental, there's a, a motivational thing involved in there, which teachers have to. So I put them around the same kind of thing, but it's easy. It's very easy for me to go in and instruct a class. It's even easier for me to lead a class 
I just write it out and do it. That's super easy. Instruction is like, well, I need to see where my class is at. Because usually I, I, I write a lesson plan out and guess what? Five minutes in your lesson plans out the window, right? Because you've got people who are not catching up or they look bored. You need to ramp it up. That's, I would say that's part of instruction. And the teaching part is like, well, why are we doing this? What's the philosophy behind it? Is there a cultural uh, context to why, why uh, people from Thailand and Cambodia punch this way and people from Okinawa and, Sh and Japan punch this way? What is that? I'd say that that's included in teaching. And many of my instructors are excellent and they do a lot of that because they have that knowledge, but it's not necessarily a, a part of the of the job requirement, I would say. So I really differentiate that, you know, and, and I and I, I'd like to think they are all valuable in different ways. And it goes back to our our discussion of combatives. Like if I'm teaching uh, just the slow form of Tai Chi mm -hmm. as a self-defense class then I've got a problem. Essentially, I'm a fraud because now Tai Chi can be used for self-defense. And if you go to China and work with some folks with the sticky hands, yeah, you got some real good self-defense concepts there. But if you don't teach that part of it, you're not mm -hmm. teaching self-defense. It's not that Tai Chi is not good for self-defense. It's just how you teach it and what your intention is behind it. So mm -hmm. there's, I think that's really important when it comes to teaching all kinds of things is what's your intention, what's your goal and how are you achieving that? You got to work backwards from that. You touched on something that we, we got into um a couple weeks ago with uh tom wexler who was on who chatted with us if you haven't had a chance you should uh you should also google him um mm -hmm. he's a martial artist he's an acrobat he's a dancer capoeirista and he and he kind of touched on this thing that you said you said you know cultural context mm -hmm. and i think again sometimes we graze over that here he was talking a little bit about the cultural context of jujitsu it's like if you're doing it here it might be built around this idea of, of winning for different cultural reasons. If you go and do jujitsu in like Brazil, it's more playful. Mm, um, yeah. Can you, can you talk even just briefly about some of the ideas that you, you see or, or, or observations you make in terms of that cultural context of, of certain martial arts? Shit. I got a couple of videos up on, uh, I think they're both on YouTube. My, my YouTube channel is British Ninja martial arts or something like that. It's my old nickname. Mm -hmm. Um, but it really like they're both Kali videos. Mm -hmm. um, one is me sparring with Guru Comrade came and the gentleman I mentioned here and Guru Comrade is in the Ted talk. He's, he's one of those, the Kali guys. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's like, I think we spar for like four or five minutes. And I'm like, man, I used to have cardio. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and it's just super fun play. And it's just, and everyone, everyone knows that there's no competitive nature to it. We're scoring and, and, every, and, and I'm going, yeah, good shot. And I'm getting him and he's saying good shot. And then right at the end, he's like, okay, stop being lazy. And he jumps up and we have a lot of fun with it. And the other one is, I think it was a, a, it was a Pat, uh, Jenny, Jenny's place. Pat with Pat was, uh, it was his, I think it was his birthday. We're in the, we're in the parking lot. And we got these long thin sticks and and doing a different kind of training and it, and you can just tell that this is super fun. We're just messing around, but there's still there's still form there. There was still a little bit of like you know there's competitive movement there. So really, that intention is really important between um, and it, and you can you can talk about culture in many different ways, not just different cultural um, areas of the world, whether it's a country or a continent, or whatever, or, or groups of people, but also just like, what, why are you doing this right now? You know, mm -hmm. if I entered the cold steel Kali tournament, that, that would look real different because it's competitive and there might be a prize or something. And you know, that's, mm -hmm. that would be someone, like, like you said, the competitive nature of it, but if yeah. you just pan around and if you ever see the old masters, then or Kakoi Kanyete, if you've never seen Kakoi Kanyete train, 
he's hilarious. He's this tiny old Filipino dude who cackles at you while he's whacking you in the head with the stick. And it's super fast and he's just amazing. And that, you know, the student is trying to keep up and they're super high level, but he's just like, ah, you do that, I do this, you do that, I do this. And it's great. And it's, and again, there's still, now with that, there's still massive learning occurring. You're learning the art, but in yeah. such a fun manner. But then also today we have to, I think we have to consider the cultural origins of these arts. And, and it's why, there were, you know, I, I talk at the end of the TED talk, I talk about the importance of where it's from and, and who is important in it and in my mentor, Guru Dan. But whatever you're training, like, why am I learning it this way? If you don't know that, then it's kind of whitewashing it. It's, it's diluting um, what I think is a, a massive part of the value of the art. So, you know, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you, you have to look at the, the Japanese roots of it. Uh, capoeira, you've got to be able to look at the reasons why it exists and why it's dance-like and, and the Angolan kind of version of it in the, from the African slave trade and that kind of thing. If you don't understand that, then you may look at something and, and we see that this is just every single day you could go down the rabbit hole of like, well, that would never work or that's, that's terrible technique. Well, you don't understand, you might not understand the context of it. You might understand the limitations of the person po posting the video. And then we get into a whole different culture, the culture of movement. You know, mm. what if they have a neurological disorder and they just want to put themselves out there? It doesn't have to always look sharp and strong and jumpy around like perfect performance. Yeah. I, I much prefer people putting, their, putting themselves out there who, uh, who are not perfect and they will show their failures and do all the kinds of... Um, things that they want to do and are not worried about how they will look the aesthetic is a is sometimes a really big problem and that and that again comes down to another cultural piece that we have to kind of look upon we we're also kind of talking about this idea of, it's almost like you're tiptoeing around it but the the idea of play like mm. practicing in a playful way gives you the freedom to experiment gives you the freedom to fail right rather than getting caught up in the in the practice to win because then you start kind of narrowing your funnel so that you yep. can like play your game always, right? So that, I went down this route um, right before I, you know, had my son and everything, and I did a few articles for Thrive Global. I did a presentation down in Santa Monica because play is so essential. And as I was learning about, you know, the play is absolutely essential for children's development. And when we talk about children's development, we're talking about the development of their brains. It's absolutely essential. Every parent knows that it is included in all curriculums at preschool and things like that. It's absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. We haven't made the jump yet to how essential it is for adults. We stop playing at adolescence. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Just massive drop in play. And when we talk about play uh, and people are like, well, I, I go and play tennis every day or I don't know. That's not play. That's doing a structured activity. We usually a lot of, pressures behind it, a lot of peer pressure and things like that. But the, the definition I use and, and the video that I've got on the articles is from the UN article 31 on the development of a child. And it, and it defines play and it's really dry. It's like, how can you make the definition of play so boring? But they do. It's like 12 bullet points. And those are really key because if you don't have a majority of those, those are not working together, like a safe environment, zero goal. There's no goal for play. If you just play for play's sake, these things that we very rarely do, mm -hmm. um, then you don't get that neuroplasticity, that neurogenesis. That's what that's what's doing. It's working those executive functions in the prefrontal cortex, working memory, creativity, convergent, diversion, thinking, response, inhibition. That's what play does. Mm -hmm. But adults stop because it wasn't long ago that we thought the brain grew to a certain point. I think the age 26 was kind of the average. You're like, hey, here's your brain. Enjoy your life. Well, right. now we know your brain develops and grows and adapts and rewires 
until you die. Yeah. So if we know that, why are we not doing those things that we know are essential for brain development, which is play and, and, and a lot of other things that are important for child development. And we're doing it less and less with children now too. Oh, well, God, yeah. We're structured, like structuring, structuring all that out. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. Structure them like right out of the gate. I talk, I've talked about this too with some of the students who are here a few times, but you know, there's so much out there about like youth specialization, but I, I think it was in Norway where they redid their entire like youth sports program in the whole country. Mm. Um, and they were like, there's not going to be any formal organized sports until children are like 13 or 14 or something. Oh, wow. That's really late. Yeah. So, so like, but I, I like it. Yeah. So you, so if you were going to ski, you would show up, everyone puts their skis on. They're like, we're just going to be here and make sure you can go down the hill. Yeah. yeah. Soccer was like, here's a bunch of balls. There's nets. There's no scoring. There's no teams. Just have fun. Yeah. Right. And then at 13 or 14 or whatever, they're like, Oh, Hey, like you're kind of good at this. Would you like to spend more time on this thing? hundred percent. I Fast mean, in, in America at that age, they usually burnt out already from yeah. the sport. They were given at four, you know, that's crazy. Right. Then fast forward and all of a sudden um, Norway wins more gold medals at the Winter yes. Olympics than any other country because they were given time to go through this really critical time of like learning what creativity is, like what their mm. artistry is, becoming a real generalist before becoming a specialist, right? Um, we're, we're, it's almost like we're obsessed with being like, being this specialized adult at younger and younger ages now. Well, we don't, we don't want to do the work, do we? If you specialize, yeah. you, you'll be really good at it instead right. of, hey, let's be a jack of all trades and play with a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Um, one of my good friends, the reason I ended up, so I told you that story about how I broke down in Indiana. Well, mm -hmm. the reason I got that, the gig, the full ride, um, the assistantship was because of Tom Parry who's now doc, Dr. Tom Parry. And he was, I went this so strange. I went to university with him. We we're good friends in England, in Lincoln. And then we went to grad school together in Indiana because I broke down there and he was already there. And he set up a meeting with the chair and the chair gave me the office. That's so because of him that I am where I am right now. He's, but his whole thing, we did, a, we, we did a fantastic conference in Hawaii. That was the best conference I've ever done in Oahu, up at Turtle Bay in the North Shore. And, uh, and his presentation was just that. It's like, no, I'm not going to teach you soccer or basketball. I'm going to teach you all of these games are basically invasion games. And if you've ever seen the video I did for, for the UCLA football team, I talk about it. It's like all these, it's all territory. It's invasion. It's war. These are just war games. Soccer is basketball. Everything is a war game. It's territorial. And so if you take the concepts of that mm -hmm. and take out the, the very individual ways we play soccer or we play volleyball and go, okay, well, yeah, there's your area. There's your area what works and a lot of it is triangles there's a lot of geometry that involved with with kind of ball sports and things like that and he gave a whole presentation on how to do these kinds of games lots of different games you can put into physical education that are not soccer based they're not anything structure based but they teach the elements and the attributes that are important for those sports if you want to go pursue them later so that was really interesting and he's a specialist in that kind of stuff he's a motor learning specialist as well so i take a lot of stuff from him too he's a good guy in fact i I missed his call today because I know when I pick up the phone that that's an hour call. So I didn't have the hour. <laughs> oh, nice. I'm, so we were the priority. You were the priority. Yes. Oh, I'll call him back later. <laughs> so you said that uh, the, the, the person who kind of got the cognitive collie thing going, who, who discovered what you were doing was a dancer, 
right? And saw the work that you were doing. Yep, yeah, Dr. J. O'Shea. Mm. I talk a lot about how, to me, the distance between martial arts and dance is much closer than whatever martial arts to like cardio kickboxing or something. Um, I'd say so, yeah, yeah. Can you talk about the 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 connections between dance and martial arts? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I mean, been, if you take what do we dance to? We dance to music, and music has been embedded in war for millennia. Mm-hmm. You know, go back to just the Napoleonic Wars or the, that that time period where there would be a drummer and drum the troops into line, and then the change of the drum would depend where you would go. You wield the whole column left. Mm-hmm. That's because the drum's doing it with signals. So music's just been embedded in combat for forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I got really excited kind of fast forward into to this. Uh, Dr. Adele Diamond, who's out of uh, University of Victor- uh, Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, she came, did a presentation at UCLA on dance. And this was after I, I had started building the Cognitive Kali curriculum. Mm-hmm. And she, she got up on stage and had these um, kids, she works with the National Dance Institute, do the class and I'm sitting there going that's that's all that's all the methods I use like it was exactly the same and she's like a very very renowned neuroscientist and she says this is really important so it was like it was like validating my stuff and then I was like oh my god am I stealing something but no I came up with it myself so it's like so we, we had lunch and uh, and chatted about it and so you know these are these are these are where I get my ideas for Carly from I don't follow a I don't just teach a martial art curriculum and say this is great I've, I've adapted it and structured it out and coded it and and that's the curriculum that we have right now um and that so the fact that the national dance institute is going yes this this type of structured teaching is good for the brain mm-hmm. and you just put the template of that teaching onto another activity fantastic yeah. and then i i keep mentioning guru comrade there's a video of this online somewhere i'll try and maybe kind of follow up with some links if if someone reminds me of all the things I said, I would send. Mm-hmm. Um, but he taught at the West Coast Filipino Martial Arts Congregation. And he's, he's a musician and a dancer. Uh, he made the connection between partner dance and sila. Uh, and one of the main connections was the framing piece of it. How you frame in, I don't do partner dancing, so that's, that's not pretend. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, framing in sila is very important for the, for the combative as- application. So he connected those two. And it was amazing to hear because he had... He had the knowledge of both and then was like, oh, and made the connection himself. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the connection's there. And I, I like how you said the distance, because as soon as I said it, I was like, the distance between martial arts and dance is like jujitsu. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is no distance. It's there. It's embedded. You're all tangled up together. It's absolutely yeah. there. You know, Bruce Lee was a cha-cha champion of Hong Kong. Where do you think he got his good footwork from? He was right. a dancer. He was a very, very good dancer. So yeah, the connections are all there. I think that's a, a cool thing. And unfortunately, I'm, I'm terrible at dancing. And in fact, I'm terrible at all kinds of rhythm, which I know is like really cliche, but I can't even, I can't sing and clap. I could, I could like clap, clap like this, but if I had like a one, two, three rhythm break, one, two, three, I can't do that and sing at the same. I can't do that and talk at the same time, I don't think. I have real trouble with it, which is where, so I've talked about my personal practice. My personal practice is more on the drumming side of things. I want to learn how to drum. Uh-huh. I have zero coordination. I can do all kinds of massively complex Kali drills, but I can't hit a drumstick to save my life. So are you working on drumming right now? I was a little bit prior, prior to, you know, right now I'm sitting at home doing not much. Um, but I, if I ended up going to the academy earlier uh, and missing Muay Thai, 
I would, we have a, there's about 20 drums at the front of the classroom and usually Mike Dubin or Alex Acuna, who were the, the two drummers in my TED talk. Yeah. If they're there, they're starting up something. We all jump in and pretend we're like in rhythm with them. So that's part of my learning. And, uh, mm-hmm. but again, the, the stigma of failure is probably what stopped me. It's probably an implicit thing. I have no problem making a fool of myself and failing, but there's mm-hmm. definitely implicit behind it because I don't have a drum back here. I yeah. could have grabbed, I could have grabbed one from work before I left. I just thought about that. We have, we have capoeira. So I have two capoeira drums sitting yeah. in a closet right now. Hey, who knows if we're, if we're lucky, maybe someone uh, will listen to this and ask for your address and send it to you. It's send you me a drum. drum. That'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but then um, I won't, uh, the, the videos of me failing won't happen for a while. I, yeah. I don't mind failing, but I, it'll be terrible if I send the first ones. Well, Matt, the same person who, um, who sent me your video, he always uses um, this phrase addicted to competence. And that's how he refers to. Ooh, that's a great uh, term. Yeah. They're, they're addicted to competence. And uh, I, think I, it's- I had that experience um, teaching the football team. We had a guy, I'm not going to say his name, but he, he, he would, we would go in and we were teaching a lot of Hubert style hand slap stuff because it was useful for them in, on the D line, on the D and O line, on the line. And, mm-hmm. uh, and he would never practice. Mm-hmm. I'd show something new, he'd never do it. But guess what? Comes back next week, he knew how to do it. Mm-hmm. He didn't want to practice in front of everyone, but he wanted to be good in front of everyone. So that was really interesting. So he actually became quite successful and got drafted to the NFL. Well, that's the distance between these types of activities. I always, I, I've mentioned it a couple of times. Um, you know, there's like, we have our traditional sports, right? Then we have what I call counterculture activities that are like surfing, skateboarding, jujitsu. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I see what you All saying, these yeah. things where there's like the failures happening pretty regularly, pretty immediately. It's part of the culture. It's accepted by everybody. And it's, it just happens on the spot with a, on a pretty regular basis and it's a little more accepted, but there are also yeah. these activities where like uh, on a cognitive level, there's a lot more happening. Right. And over time it's a larger learning experience. Whereas I think that a lot of our more traditional sports are kind of trying to avoid failure. There's not as much acceptance of it. It's like the, the, the learning stops a little bit earlier, you know, it doesn't continue on throughout the process. And I think you can you can map that theory and those correlations uh, directly onto money earned in those sports. Like, there's not a lot of money in. Well, I, I I I've not heard about a lot of money in surfing and skating. I'm sure there's people that make money, but yeah. soccer, football, basketball. You know, you you always want your kid to get the scholarship and do that. So unfortunately, it's a driving factor. Yeah. And so push the push, push, push to be better, um, yeah. and not fail, because right. that means missing missing the you know the 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 scout being at the game and you didn't make the goal as a 12 year old, you know, probably earlier the scouts looking out for talent. And that's a real shame because we're not built for that. Kids are not built to be pushed that way. I don't think they need to have more enjoyment if their childhoods. Yeah. What um, someone wrote here uh, with regard to drumming, the suggestion is to see the movie, the visitor. So I'm not, but um, that's uh, that came as one of the suggestions. So I, I really thought it was going to be the movie Only the Strong. Have you ever seen Only the Strong? It's the Capoeira movie. Oh, no, oh my God, it's, it's, it's magical. It's like the streets of LA or New York, I can't remember which city, and there's uh-huh. gangs and there's drugs, and uh-huh. the Capoeirista beats them all up. It's, it's epic. Oh, <laughs> so, so there's a lot of the music and the drumming in that. <laughs> amazing. Um, I, ha- I have another question. Um, so you were talking about the, again, coming back to the drumming and, and, you're, and you stepping outside your comfort zone as somebody who holds black belts, who is uh, 
you know, very proficient in martial arts. We've talked in the past with some people about this idea of communication and martial arts being a, a, a route to a certain form of communication between people. Um, in many ways, especially with something like a jujitsu that's very intimate or, or, or these more aggressive sports, maybe um, kickboxing, things like that. Hmm. You know, it's, it's becoming familiar with that aggressive communication. Where do you go as somebody who's almost their entire life is built around uh, this kind of aggressive physical communication for this other, these other like nonverbal interactions that uh, are different forms of communication. Where do you go? Do you, or do you, you don't have to have anywhere to get that you go, but I'm curious if there are places you go to, to have those kind of, 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 of different nonverbal um, interactions. So like kind of where, where else do I train or where else do I go to yeah, get the I mean, experiences? Do you, do you, yeah, do you do you have you tackled any dancer or, or gone into that direction at all? Um, yeah, I'm, the vision in my head is like double legging a dancer, like tackling, actually tackling. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, yeah, I've done a couple of, I've done some dance. Well, it's been a while now, you know, with a with a young child. Yeah, you know, I have to go back basically three years to uh -huh. where I had a had a life, you know, <laughs> outside yeah. of, uh, of of child rearing. Um, yeah, I've always I've always wanted to be good at dancing um, and even singing as well. Any actually all music. I've never I played saxophone for a half second in high school, and there's a guitar in a cupboard over here somewhere that hasn't been dusted off in quite a while. I've always wanted to do it, mm -hmm. and uh, and you know your life life gets in the way. So as far as what would I do? Like really, to be honest, it, I still I live I really do live in the martial arts world, and out here. I can still get that. I can still find somewhere to go as a white belt where I'm like, whoa, I don't know what I'm doing here. Even, even comrade, I take his CELAC class that we run through UCLA right now. I've taken it a couple of times and he's teaching it from a very different perspective. He studies a little bit of, of uh, he's a capoeirista as well and he's done some animal style movement. So he, he kind of throws those in there to the CELAC. And I, it's probably because I have a, a certain movement pattern embedded that when he shows it a different way, I have a lot of trouble with it. So I do feel like, uh, more of a white belt learning that so it's easy to it's easy to be humbled in martial arts no matter how good you are so doing that but i what really fascinated me about your question which might i might not be answering your question here but i want to go down that route is the is that nonverbal communication when you're training martial arts and it's i think it's another important piece of the of the of why it's a little maybe a little bit better than the uh, dance or sports or any other type of complex movement is that you know you're putting your body in the hands of that person, jiu-jitsu especially. You know, horrific injuries could happen all the time in martial arts, yet they don't. And that's, we have a lower injury rate than most other traditional sports, basketball, football, flag football even, lower injury rate. And it's because there's that level of trust. We understand that this is really dangerous, so I'm not going to, well, <laughs> some people do. I'm not going to spaz out, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to, be as risky in this i'm going to look after because i know if i don't train if i don't look after my training partner one they will be injured and won't be able to train with me and two no one else is going to want to train with me so i have to be able to do that on a very selfish level but i think humans in general are more selfless and we're like no i don't want to hurt another human being i think that's where it really lies mm -hmm. so that nonverbal communication happens all the time and dr o'shea jay o'shea who i talked about that's the route she took her kind of research is 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 what is this dichotomy of martial arts where we step onto the mat and we punch and kick each other in the head and wrench each other's limbs 
Mm-hmm. Yet we are family. Like mm-hmm. we are best friends afterwards. Like, what is that? And she dove into that world. And it's really interesting. She wrote a book about it. She talked about play risk and, uh, and martial arts. It's very, very interesting. So um, I don't know a lot about it as much as her, but I, I think it's a very important component. So that, that nonverbal piece, the piece, you know, you could use the Bruce Lee quotes, a punch is not a punch, a kick is not a kick. When you step out there and train in martial arts, you're getting so much more. As, mm-hmm. as far as the community, as far as that deep cultural context, if you're in the right school and they're kind of focusing on that kind of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. the best part of me training at the academy is when Guru stops and tells stories. You'll mm-hmm. sit there and grab our books and write them out and, and hear this just this living legend of martial arts talk. That's the best part about it. And so, yeah, I, I understand that kind of nonverbal communication piece. I'm, I'm definitely not an expert, but I appreciate mm-hmm. it in many ways. Well, the, the beauty of martial arts too is that everybody ends up being a teacher and a student, right? Mm. Because there's so much of um, the sharing of information that is what makes people better at the practice, right? Because they're not just learning it from you, the teacher, I'm learning it from you. And then there's somebody who's below me that I'm then handing the information to. That's happy to communicate the thing that I've learned back down you know, that, that's part of the culture as well. That's really beautiful. It's not just like you said, following a leader in front of a room and then you don't have any sort of interaction or sharing of information. 100%, which is, which is you know, what, the really scary part about how we're going to move forward with martial arts right now. That's, I'm, I'm working on the reopening plan of like, what does it look like when we go back to martial arts? And I'm like, looks like a lot of solo practice. That's what it looks like to begin with. But talking of that, there's actually... Now there is published research on that, which I am so glad that you said that because it reminded me. An old Muay Thai student of mine, Dr. Janice Fung, um, did her PhD dissertation on MMA on children uh, on on the autistic spectrum. Mm -hmm. And one of the big pieces of the results, the findings they found was the impact of peer learning. So they had uh, children who were not on the spectrum, also in the class, helping out a little bit, but peer at the peer level. And that was a massively important part. So I think peer level, but also that big brother, big sister thing, right? So the white belt, the green belt looks awesome to you, you know, and then the black belts are just like, we have a deist problem in martial arts. They look like gods. And then some, some, some people take advantage of that, which is really a shame, but it's, it's almost unattainable mm-hmm. until you get to a purple belt and depending what belt system you look at. But then you're like, well, hang on a second. Like, wow. Yeah. I know how to do that. He does it better, but I, I know how to do that. So that big brother, big sister really helps build up people. And that works in any format when there's someone who's there to help you step up. And it's not just the teacher instructor thing like that, that peer, piece of it Mm -hmm. you're more likely Mm -hmm. to divulge your fears and your failures to them which helps you learn Mm -hmm. that's a really key piece i think which i i think why the belt system is actually quite important especially for children and youth especially Mm -hmm. for that Uh, as adults i think it's important as well but the development piece in the children is is key well dan koval who we had on last week who owns his own runs his own jiu-jitsu program in manhattan he's a superstar um but he said as a purple belt the reason he started teaching was not because he wanted to make money necessarily right out of the gate. It's because he thought that if he taught, it would make him better. So as a purple belt, he had started teaching jujitsu so that he would get better at jujitsu. But it reminded me of, I forget where I read it, but it was like, when you're educating somebody on how to do something, you're trying to teach, convey to them, I don't want you to learn this just to learn it. I want you to learn it as if you had to then teach it to someone else. And then it really like plugs in. I mean, that's the, one of the oldest philosophies in the history of man. So teaching mm-hmm. is the highest form of learning. Guru mm-hmm. says it all the time. 
Mm. Yeah. So if if you if you can't effectively teach something, you don't know it as well as you probably thought you did. That's that's the way I say it. One person wrote in here, uh, just uh, well, a couple things. One person said that they uh, also saw the movie The Visitor and then bought a drum. Like so, I guess oh, it's nice. very inspiring. Inspirational. Okay. Yeah. Um, someone else asked if you could if you could spell the neuroscientist's name that you were just talking about, J. O'Shea. Yes, uh, her, I think her legal name is Janet, but she goes by J, so J A Y, uh -huh. and then O'Shea is in the the Irish name O, uh, thingy S H E A, S H E A, okay. as in Shea butter, not as in A Y. Yeah. Okay. So her book is on Amazon. She is, I believe, still a professor at UCLA. We're not in contact too much anymore. Um, What's the name I of the book? It's Play Risk Something. Okay. I should know that. I should have looked that up before showing well, before, that I didn't know it. But there's my failure there, right there. I'll, before we put it out there, I'll, I'll edit it in. I'll put on your accent. And put the I'll put in the <laughs> That'd be great. It'll Just censor my mouth and put it on overdub or something. <laughs> Um, I don't want to keep you all night. Um, I want to just make sure that people know that if they have any questions, now's the time. If you feel like um, you want to type something into the box, I'll, I'll, I'll ask Paul. Or um, if you want to ask it, I can unmute you. You can do the little hand raise. And then, um, yeah, we'll take a couple questions if anybody has them. If not, we'll, uh, we'll be able to we'll wrap up here in just a few. Um, but just so you know, Paul, we have a lot of people who are kind of from many different movement backgrounds. Mm. Um, we've got some dancers here, some jujitsu practitioners, people who just practice movement. Um, so a lot of really different perspectives. Um, we have a question. One is, I'm going to read it exactly as it's written here. It says, vagus nerve conditioning has been connected to repetitive sounds and shaking. Is there any sense of Kali patterns plus impact mm. plus impact force conditioning the nervous system? So I'm not, not my field, so I can't speak to um, whether there's research out there or anything like that. But, but yeah, thank you for the question because it brings up a really good point. Um, two things, actually, uh, when we look at the whole experience um, and that, doing the physical motion of uh, heaven six drill, which is a, it's a crossing the midline drill. It's quite complex. It took me bloody ages to learn it when I first started. And then I taught it to one of the football players. He got it in an hour and I was really mad at him because he's much better than me. But um, you take that drill, you do it on your own and it will have this, uh, you're picking up a tool. That's good. So we use cognitive load. How, how much cognitive load are we going to add to make this? So you're picking up a tool. That's cognitive load. You're doing a, a motion. That's cognitive load. You've got to think about where the direction is. Um, and then you're doing multiple kind of patterns. There's, there's a bunch of that stuff in there. But then as soon as you start hitting either an inanimate object, which actually that would be kind of the next level. You hit a heavy bag or, a, or a, uh, anything that's not living. Um, then that, that, um, tactile and that vibrational force without question has an effect and i don't know what that effect is and that's an expertise that, that uh, we'd have to look at someone else who understands it but it absolutely has an impact um and then when you go to a life body to where it's not an inanimate object but their stick is moving your stick is moving you have to adjust so that you don't hit each other or you do the drill correctly mm -hmm. that adds another component to it as well so that tactile piece whether it's weapons or non-weapons where it's tactile you know jujitsu all day long. One of the biggest studies that I cite is on the website is a, is a study of 
you know, you have to dig to find this, but they call design sport. That was their, that was their kind of like their intervention. And you dig down and it's, it's freestyle wrestling. That's what they had. They had freestyle wrestlers versus like running on a treadmill or something. And there was massive differences in, in cognitive function and that, that close quarter con, uh, tactile stuff. And then the fact that wrestling, jujitsu, ground game, whatever, judo, whatever it is, it's a very, it's a high level chess game, right? From what I understand, I'm a white belt, but I know that it, it takes quite a bit of thinking to, to, to kind of like predict your path and your movement and all that kind of stuff. So absolutely vibrational and tactile are key things. I just don't, I couldn't talk to it as an expertise, but then also very specific to Carly. If you start going with someone, you know, and you can get up to a high speed with the rattan, which is the stick we use, then you get this beautiful burning smell because of the, the friction between the sticks. Mm-hmm. And so that smell, that, that, that extra sense, I would say, has an impact on things as well. And se- a sense of smell has been uh, tied to memory in research before. I think it's the, cl- the closest sense to memory or something like that. You look it up. I think it, it's, you know, there's been many studies about it and it's, it's pretty uh, impactful. So, yes, that smell is like, it's nostalgia for anyone who trains Kali. When you start smelling that smell, it's fantastic. So great Listen, question. Yeah. This, is the, this is the first time we've ever gotten into the sense of smell really? in, in, a, in a movement conversation. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah, I don't, I don't know whether it impacts you know, your motor cortex, your motor learning or anything like that, yeah. but it certainly affects the brain. We know that. When you smell, you know, for all Americans, I assume it's warm apple pie because I watched the movies and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it's like, what, what, would we, what did I grow up with? It would be the smell of uh, tenants as sitting on my granddad's lap. He would be having a, a very specific beer. Doesn't that, that smell of that beer, mm-hmm. and I'll admit the taste when I can get it, is incredibly nostalgic to me, incredibly nostalgic. And then chicory, I'm not sure if anyone's familiar with the, with the root of chicory. A, a lot of people grind it and it's used as like a coffee-based drink. Yeah. That takes me back to my childhood as well because we didn't drink you know, coffee. We wouldn't have coffee as kids because of the caffeine. So yeah, sense of smell is, is very, very nostalgic. So. That's interesting. Yeah. Someone looked it up and it's and Janet O'Shea's book is Risk, Failure, Play, What Dance Reveals About Martial Arts Training. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, she 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 delves deep. We taught a class together. It was cool. It was I tell you what, probably the best class I've ever done, academic style class where we had a lab as well. But it was how to watch a martial arts movie, and I was really unsure because at the time she was, uh, you know, I'd say an intermediate martial artist, but didn't have you know a lot of high level experience at that time, and uh, and I was worried. And she nailed it. Oh my god, she was pulling concepts out specifically from her dance background. I was like, this is gold dust. It's fantastic. And the best piece about it is that the students had to come up with their own representation of their final project. So some students wrote a poem that had two of my Kali instructors in tears because a lot of the training we did was Kali. Uh, but then one guy, he refused. They, they, they had to kind of submit a little bit of it so we could, she could grade it at midterm or something. And he wouldn't. And he was doing a video. And it was like, you know, we don't know what this is going to be. And he replicated the fight scene from Born Supremacy, where he, he dives through the patio door and fights the guy with a towel and a book and eventually chokes him out with a towel in the shower. If you remember that scene, recreated it to the point where I sent it to Jeff Imada, who was the who did that fight scene for the movie. And I'm like, Jeff, you need to see this because it was so epic. And I mean, he was a student. So, you know. <laughs> 
he jumps through an open window and they added the sound of the breaking glass. It was like, it wasn't high quality like production, but the way they did the choreography and then tied it into a martial art at each stage was fantastic. Um, I don't know why I've gone down this path. Oh, Jay O'Shea, because she's fantastic and she interprets these things very well. So I highly recommend the book. Um, someone else asked, um, maybe afterward, if you can send me uh, um, a list of some of the, the neuroscientists that you've worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, a gentleman who takes class with us. Uh, he lives in Brazil. His name is Nelson, who's on here. And uh, he says that his research is about education, movement, and also mental health movement intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe if at some point in the future, if you have the time, send some of the names of the neuroscientists you work with, and I can pass them on to everybody who's, who's interested. Yeah, I'll do, I'll do an email to you and I'll try and remember all the things. Or if you have some notes of things I said, I'll send, I'll send them. Yeah. Um, but if you want to, if you want to do some, look at the studies, I have a page on my website. Uh, <laughs> I should know where it is. Shouldn't I? I have to go look at it. If you go under, if you go under what is cognitive Kali on the cognitive Kali website, right at the bottom is, I've already forgotten the name of it, general research. And that, that actually leads to another website, which is where you can find the talk that I spoke about Dr. Builder, where he talks about the deep brain, the early brain stuff, marshalledu.com. But that's like my um, repository. If I see a study or if one of my neuroscientists tags me usually on Facebook, say, hey, check this out. I take the link and I throw it on a button on this webpage. It's a very basic webpage. I think there's three sections. So if you want to dive into the actual research, there's a lot of stuff there. Some very, very closely related, like the wrestling study and some just like, oh, piques your interest and kind of wants you to kind of go down that route a little bit more. So people are welcome to go go that. It's just free page. It's, no, it's just, you click a button, it links you to that NIH study or that published journal or whatever it is. Awesome. Yeah. Um, is there anywhere that people can, with the way the world is right now, are you doing any sort of online classes or is there, are there any online resources that people can jump on? I know people are jump, diving all over the place to get new in, information and educate themselves through things like Zoom and stuff. Is there somewhere that you're doing things like that right now that people could find you? Well, I, <laughs> I, released, I released my online program last May Mm-hmm. Uh, did did a presentation at a conference and uh, and I actually did another. I actually did. Here's the killer thing. I did another TED talk mm-hmm. um, last year, TEDx UCLA, mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't realize that it wasn't wasn't like a formal one. It was a much shorter one, but it ended up being filmed and edited, and they were going to put it forward. And I, I wore this. I literally, might not be this version. I have a few of them, but I wore the cognitive Carly shirt. And TEDx wouldn't post it because you can't kind of self-promote. And it's like, man, and I wasn't even talking about Cognitive Carly that much. That was maybe a little bit, but, but, um, but that sucks. So I kind of released that last year. It's all on the, on the website, Fundamental Series. It's geared towards, it's geared more towards non-martial artists. It's actually a very, very simple program. If you've done Carly, yeah. it might be kind of boring, to be honest. But, then, but my intention is for this kind of program to get out to more of the people who need it. Uh, for for people who have disorders and things like that, so it's a it's about fifty videos. It's on the website. Um, I'd be happy to actually send a code so you can get a discount if we do that through the email. Okay, that you can send to your group or whatever you want uh, if they want to dive into that. And it's it's very basic. It starts with footwork and basic stick, and it's uh, it actually can it can get very complex. That's the idea of it is that some basic movements, and then you dive into how you cognitize them, which I don't believe is a real word, but I use it. Uh, how do you cognitize this movement to make it more complex? So that's, that's what's out there right now. By now I should have had series two or intermediate series or something out, but uh, 
I've moved a couple of times since that and had to focus on my family life. And, uh, and obviously right now with COVID, I, actually right now, I probably have more time to start looking into that. I have my little dojo right now. Um, I teach, I teach online for UCLA. So right now our programs are actually free. Mm-hmm. Um, Comrade teaches the Carly on Wednesday nights. He teaches the CLOP on Tuesday mornings. This is all California time, mm-hmm. PST. Um, and then we have Capoeira going on, but it's, only, there's only two more weeks of that. Then we hit a break. Um, and then we'll have summer classes starting again. So that's generally where I do my zoom online classes. I've done a couple of seminars, done mm-hmm. some stuff for the UK. I'm you know, on the website. I think there's like a request a program if you, if you want to, dive into it and learn it a little bit from me then obviously i can do it online i can do it in person when we're back to that that model of of teaching so yeah i'm available but uh uh this is not my full-time gig you know ucla full-time job takes up a lot and a two-year-old takes up a lot and uh and obviously this this time is is interesting i i really i really think it's important especially for uh, people who move, or really anyone, business owners, is it, it, some people are forced to, to, to keep a living and they've got to produce, produce, produce. But it's not a time where we really have all this free time. It's, that's not what's going on right now. Like, like we're all in pretty much a traumatic experience, one that's not occurred across the world since, you know, what, what, what we keep talking about Spanish flu, which I think was 1918. This is a really big deal. So I would encourage everyone, you mentioned mental health at the end. I would encourage everyone to be really gentle with themselves. Like I see a lot of people out there doing a lot of working out and I'm like, I have so much time to work out and, and discover what happened to my abs that I had in my twenties and become strong and become flexible and design new programs and do things. And when I, when I first got, I, I remote work. So I'm still very, very lucky to have a job and to be able to work. I was like, man, I'm going to get all this stuff done in three weeks. I think our first, our first date was April 19th. We went March 16th to April 19th. That was when we were going to be in. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, I'm going to get so much done. And I've been productive, but not as much as I thought. And I think it's really important for mental health right now is to just whoa, calm down a little bit. You don't have to be productive. Look after yourself, move when you can, eat well when you can. But you know what? Have the ice cream, deliver the Denny's if you fancy a breakfast, which may or may not have happened this week with me. Uh, be, be okay to yourself. And if, if being okay to yourself, if your reward is, you know, a full green tea and, and vegetables diet, which is definitely not my cup of tea but but do that it's 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 not what it's for me it's what's for you so look after yourself during this time and and try and get a little bit of movement in or do as much movement as you like because that's what you're doing and that's the distraction you need that's more important for your mental health than believing all these memes i keep seeing on instagram and facebook about you know you need to be in the in the creative mode and you need to be in this mode you know sometimes you need to be in i'm going to watch eight episodes of the office mode and I've seen them all before and I'm going to laugh at exactly the same times. That's okay. It's okay to do that. And I think not many people are saying that out there. So I hope you don't mind me kind of taking a pedestal and, and making that little claim right there. I think it's important. By all means, by all means. Um, especially uh, coming from somebody who has uh, spent the amount of time that you have, you know, researching and moving. If, uh, if that's the word, then that's the word. I'll, I'll take, take a break. Yeah, I've done a lot of moving. <laughs> yeah. Well, I look forward to um, the world, you know, allowing us to all move around again and, and, and collaborate and work together in person because, like I said, I went to UCLA. I haven't been back since 2005. 
But now you, after you, talking, you went to school there, you graduated in 05? I, I no, I dropped out in 05. <laughs> That's fine too. Yeah. But I was, in the, I was actually in the theater department. So I don't know if you know Ed Monahan, who teaches. Of course I know Ed. See for Ed. Yes, yeah, stage combat. That's a, man, that's a story. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I forget the name of my Tai Chi teacher. He's still there, I think. I, is, is it Peter? It's, I No, that's my Tai Chi instructor. <laughs> it's, it's really on the tip of my tongue. I, but... Yeah, he's still there teaching classes. I, I don't think I've actually met him. He does a bunch of Kung Fu as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The, the rumor was when I was in school was that he... Um, that he had like won a bunch of like underground street fights and it like killed people. And that's how he made his money to be able to move to the U S. Um, and then, you know, he was really interesting, but as 18 year olds, like we could not appreciate what was happening. We were in yeah. the, in the sculpture garden at like 8am on a Friday. Nice. And no one could, no one could appreciate what was happening with the wooden swords and, and everything. It was just, it, it really, everybody like, you know, was in the Ed Monahan because for people who are listening, the guy, was like he didn't seem real you know the guy he drove like a monster truck and then he came in talking about how he choreographed some of like the batman movies and you're just like all right well i'll do whatever you want this is way, <laughs> way better than what's happening in the sculpture garden at 8 a.m so that that leads to my story perfectly uh -huh. no one no one knows, knows who this guy is i put on a seminar with nicholas sanyak who's a, a very high level sabat instructor uh -huh. which is box francais it's the french kickboxing I put the seminar on and you had to register for the seminar and I had the roster. I'm a young 30 year old at the time mm -hmm. and Sifu Ed rolls in and just kind of strolls in and says hi. And, and I was all like, excuse me, sir, who are you? You're not on my list. And he, I think he got a little, he got his back up a little bit and then he found out that I was in charge and we was, we both kind of like eyeballed each other and, and we've since chatted and I, I went to teach for him not long ago, actually last year, two years ago, taught, taught some Jeet Kune Do and, and some concepts from Kondu Kali for one of his theater classes. So yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> yeah, he definitely, definitely, um, definitely an interesting interaction at first, but he's a great guy. We've had some really good conversations since. One of my favorites. I really, yeah. I really loved that class. It got me inspired in a lot of ways and, nice. you know, so yeah, I'm so happy that he's still there. It's amazing. I thought that there was some sort of crossover in some way. Yeah, yeah, I wish there'd been more. I think he's been like, we've both been very busy and wanted to do things, but our paths have not really crossed yet. And I'm hoping that does soon. Maybe that's something I need to make happen. Um, is there anything that you'd like to throw on here or, or website or anything before, before we wrap it up and everybody can say good night, goodbye, or? Big, uh, you know, I, I kind of like my, my real uh, personal life and work life are really just embedded in each other. Mm -hmm. The big thing we're working on right now, and this is, um, all of my little, all of my little projects are on this website, marshalledu.com, and it's mostly UCLA stuff. Uh, I just use that website because it's easier to do it, and it's martial education. That's that's kind of what we're looking at. Uh, and the big thing I'm working on right now is Wonder Women, and we're doing, we're about to do another panel soon with Diana Lee and Asanto, Lauren Kim, who's a huge actor and stunt woman, and Katie O'Brien, who I think is about to her career is about to explode, especially when it's announced what she's in next and that kind of thing. And we're going to talk about being a female in both the martial arts industry and the Hollywood and movie and TV industry. Uh, and we're doing that because martial arts is a, is a male dominated industry. There are some phenomenal female martial artists out there. And I believe I have a responsibility to essentially tailgate on those four letters, which 
which hold a lot of respect across the world, UCLA, I get to poach them and use them for a little bit better. So if, if UCLA, our focus is, hey, we're going to highlight female martial artists. I'm going to look to promote, um, not, not in rank or anything, but promote female martial artists and have them teach and their perspectives and, have like, and show, show everyone that females can be strong, they can be graceful, they can be intelligent, all at the same time or different times, whatever. It's no different than males. Then I think that's an important piece of our, um, of our industry, the martial arts industry. And, and, and specific in jiu-jitsu, I hear some horror stories about females not training in jiu-jitsu because they're not welcome very much. And I think that's awful. So um, we really, we're really trying to highlight that. And then if you go to the site, you'll see we did the, the Martial Arts and Wellness Symposium. We had 18 different speakers from a variety of uh, topics. Dr. Jerry Kang's keynote speech was phenomenal. And then we did the TED event last year. Kurt Cornwell's keynote of that is fantastic. He talks about... Um, you know, I've forgotten the title, the exact title, but he's, he talks about self-defense in a, well, how we, we've got to look after ourselves. That's the first line of self-defense. And he talks about rates of suicide and obesity and cardiovascular. It's like, we need to look after ourselves. That's the first line of self-defense. We're going to get killed by a car accident, uh, a health issue or a mental health issue far more than some guy jumping out in an alley and attacking us. It's far more likely to happen. So Let's focus on that. So that's my, that's my collect all website of projects and cool things happening. Uh, it's a very disorganized website. It's not user friendly. I apologize. But if you, if you dive down the rabbit hole, you'll find some previous experiences and previous events we've had. And that's kind of generally where I add things. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll make sure to send that out as well. And also if you send me the name of the neuroscientist, I'll throw a whole mishmash into everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, well, like I said, I look forward to being able to uh, come out to LA. It's been a long time and, Assuming it, you know, I'm going to LA, it'll be the time where training and things are happening again. So I'm looking forward to coming by and uh, training with you and your, and your, and your team. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be fun. Let us know when it happens. Hopefully, hopefully it's not too long. We get a, we get a handle on this thing and we can get back to some form of normal and then normal, normal, normal at some point in the future. Amazing. Well, I hope we get to chat again here at some point. This was amazing. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here and thank you everyone for listening. Thanks, everybody. Everybody have a great night. Paul, we'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye.